0: Have you seen the show? I'm almost embarrassed to ask. You probably won't even want to admit it if you've seen it. Have you seen the show Between Two Ferns with Zach Galifianakis, a comedian? I'm the only guy who watches. You've, you've seen it? You've heard of it? You've seen it? Some people know of its existence. Okay, um, it's it, it's pretty funny. It, it's this comedian and he gets these, really, gets like these A-list celebrities and he brings them onto this mock kind of talk show scenario and then he just he just rips them. He just mocks them. He just ridicules them. Now the funny thing is it is that they're in on the joke and they just kind of poke fun at the foibles of you know all these A-list celebrity stars. And it's it, it's it's a good old laugh. But the thing about it, the thing that stands out to me, is this motif that he came up with where they're literally sitting between these two ferns and they're just overpowering the scene. It's. Quite comical in itself, these giant ferns on either side of this celebrity just kind of hanging all over them. It's, 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 it's a great parody. It's really fun. I say all that to say it strikes me how where we've gone the last five weeks has stood between two trees or really between two sets of trees. That's the entire motif of the word of God. That it begins in a garden, and in the story of that garden, we read about two trees, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of eternal life. And we know that the first man, the first woman, Adam and Eve, broke God's command. They took of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they received the due penalty, the curse. But God in that was even gracious upon them. For whenever they sinned, whenever they broke fellowship with God, whenever they brought into this virus, into this system, this defect that affects all of creation, this breaking of shalom that breaks our relationship with God and one another, ourselves, the creation itself, God was merciful and actually guarded them. And we talked about that word guarding or keeping from the tree of eternal life so that we would not live forever in sin. And that was pointing us to a tree that would stand in the middle. This is the tree we talk about very often in the life of faith as Christians, and well, we should. It's that tree that stood on a hill called Golgotha where our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was crucified. And of course the church for centuries now has pondered, uh, reflected upon, written about, sung about, prayed about, and talked about what is happening on this tree, on this hill. And really we can't wrap it up into any one word or phrase. We know that here God demonstrates his love for us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We know that in that death on the cross, somehow he was substituting himself for us in the penalty that should have befallen us. We know that somehow he became a propitiation for the wrath of God, taking that condemnation to win for us grace and salvation. We know that somehow, even in the midst of all that was transpiring in that wicked, evil crucifixion, Jesus was setting himself up for ultimate victory over sin and death and Satan. So, so much is pulled into that tree on that hill and we celebrate it and we worship God for here we see his love. We have hope for humanity. We have the forgiveness of our sins. We have the coming victory of God promised for us. We have the resurrection of Jesus Christ that's pointing to our own hope in the resurrection. So much in that tree in the middle, of course. But then the two trees we probably talk the least about actually, this is the trees that we see here in the final chapters of our revelation. Here we see a river coming down from a throne through a city, but it's a city and there's a throne, but there's a river and there's trees. Somehow it already occurs to me, somehow it should already strike us that this is somehow a very green city indeed. There has been indeed the progress of the creation or the cultural mandate, and yet we see an integration with all that God created. And we see on either side, of course, of this river of life is the tree of life. And the tree is bearing its fruit 12 months every month in season to bring eternal life. I love that line too. And its leaves are for the healing of nations. I don't know what that means exactly, but I love it. (laughs) Somehow underneath this tree, the nations themselves sit and healing for all of our brokenness, for all of our sin, for all of our misery, somehow healingness is, healing is already working itself into the system and we are receiving eternal life now and forever through the blessing. It does occur to me, of course, And this again, it'd be my observation. It could be contested, it could be talked about. It seems that many people who make a lot to do of those first trees in the garden seem to make little or nothing of those last trees. Because if we made more of those last trees that we see in the garden, we might make more of our call to continue to be stewards and to care for the creation. Because let's remember that when the fall happened, the mandate wasn't lifted. The mandate to care for creation, to steward God's gifts, and the promise that we would be held accountable for our actions would one day come. And so let's not mince our words anymore. Let's quit standing on the fence. Let's be a church, let's be a people, let's you and I be individuals who embrace and receive and stand in this call to be, stewards of God's creation. Here's where I'm looking for an amen. Here's where I'm looking for buy-in. Here's where I'm looking for after five weeks to have some people convinced to say, yes, yes, we will hear this word from God and let's start living as stewards. Let's be a church. Let's make this one of our manifestos of faith. Let's be a church that unabashedly worships God, our creator. Yes, our redeemer. Yes, our sustainer. Yes, our savior our Creator and the God of all creation let's be a church that embraces our role as stewards stewards who will give account for how we care for the creation entrusted to us let's be a people who look forward to the inheritance my people we have an inheritance coming to us that should get us excited that should get us pretty pumped up we have an inheritance and you know what we're inheriting all of it We are inheriting the creation. Well, let's invest it in a way that we get some return on this investment. Let's glorify God through this inheritance that we will fully receive when Jesus Christ returns. Amen, friends, amen. That's what the last five weeks have been. And now we live into it for the rest of our lives until Christ comes. Amen, hallelujah. Okay, I asked for some questions. I got some questions. So this is gonna be a little bit different. I don't know if I've ever done this before. I'm going to try to answer biblically some of the questions that came to me. So here we go. I will try not to drag this out any longer than necessary. Question number one. Okay, George, I looked, rapture doesn't appear in the Bible. It does appear very prominently in a lot of books, (laughs) in a lot of fiction, and in a lot of Christian circles. So what's the deal with the rapture and why? Does it matter? Okay, let's break it down real quick. Again, I'll try to make it really quick, as quick as I possibly can. Um, I wanna be fair now. I wanna try and be as fair as I possibly can. Because in our faith, we sometimes make up a word. We come up with a word, and we fill that word with all kinds of meaning. Guess what another word that we made up is? The Trinity. We made that up. It doesn't appear in the Bible. But we affirm that as a word that reflects what we see in the scriptures. When we look at passages like Jesus being baptized in the Jordan, we see Jesus, the Son, step into the water. We hear the voice of the Father, this is my Son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. We see this Holy Spirit landing on Jesus. We see the revelation of God somehow in this triune being of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we take that passage and other insights we have from scripture, and we kind of put the stamp on it our triune God of grace and love. You'll hear me say that reference all all the time. But to be fair, that's an insertion that we make to reflect our faith and what we believe. So to be fair, while the word rapture doesn't appear in the Bible, many people have taken that as a word to encompass a systematic belief that they have. They believe that Jesus will come in two parts. The first part being a secret taking away of the faithful, the believers, the righteous in Jesus Christ. And seven years later, after a tribulation, a period of tribulation, Jesus will come again. This is a part of a broader systematic thought called dispensationalism. This was popularized by John Nelson Darby in the late 1900s, but it didn't really take effect until only about 100 years ago. In 1909, the Schofield Reference Bible first appeared, and it laid out the dispensational chart of the ages. And with that, there was a series of consequences. So let me, again, try to briefly summarize this. You've heard of and experienced the dynamic or the reality of unintended consequences, right? Certain things that we do, certain decisions that we make, certain things might have unintended consequences along with it. For example, we hired Kellen, but we got Sonia. Great unintended consequences. Woo-hoo, you know, sometimes it works out really good. She loves it when I point her out publicly. She's so into that. Um, uh, Some unintended consequences are great. Sometimes not so great. What I perceive and I interpret to be an unintended consequence of this belief system is that Christians who believe that we are being swept away and taken from the earth have simply made the jump then, we are being taken from the earth, so, and I say this again theologically, so literally, to hell with the earth. I have seen the dynamic play itself out that if we believe that we will be taken from the earth, there is less incentive, less motivation, less reason to care for the earth. Now here's where I want to be as fair as I can possibly be. I don't think that's what John Nelson Darby intended. I don't think that's what dispensationalism intended. I just think people by and large, and my being a people, we are lazy. (laughs) We often want excuses. We very often want the easy way out. And there's a lot of people, if they can find an easy way out of the hard work of stewardship and creation care, will simply often take it. But our faith never asks us to take the easy way out except when it comes to the grace of God through Jesus Christ and our salvation. Take the easy way out, take the grace of Jesus, take his gift of salvation, and then work hard with the salvation that you have received. Work hard with this gift of faith that I've given to you. Work hard for the glory of God and work to continue this call to stewardship and creation care. Okay, there are whole books about this. We could have whole after church coffee and discussions about that. But that I think is the unintended consequence and why we do not affirm or believe what is the rapture, which leads to the second question. George, if you don't believe in the rapture, what do you believe in or what do we believe in? Where do we stand as a church? Great question. I'm gonna again, try to answer that really succinctly and also point to why this points us more towards creation care We stand with the longest standing history and tradition of the church for two millennium now that believes when Christ returns, it's one and done. There isn't a rapture and then a second, second coming. There is a second coming, Jesus Christ will return. Now, there's a lot that we can talk about with end times, just as there's a lot that we can talk about in regards to Genesis chapters one and two and creation care, you'll notice You'll notice very intentionally, I didn't get into six day literal creationism, day age creationism, theistic evolutionary creationism, age gap theory creationism, and I'm just skimming the surface. I focused on the things that we can universally agree on as Christians. God is the creator, we are called to be stewards. He is the sustainer and provider and all those things that we've been talking about the last several weeks. Same with end times. There's different theologies, there's different systematic theologies and schools of thought, but this is what is pretty much universally agreed upon. Jesus will return, we will experience the resurrection of the dead, and we as a church should be ready. Pretty much universally agreed upon throughout the church is this, Jesus has promised that he is coming back. When he comes back, we will experience the resurrection of the dead. And these bodies will be glorified to live eternally with him. And we should be ready. Throughout the scriptures, there's this motif of be ready. It's coming like a thief in the night. You don't know when it's coming. Live as a people ready. At any given moment, should Christ return, we should not be caught off guard. We should be there standing, hands lifted high, singing praises, lifting prayers, saying, this is what we've been wanting, Jesus. So the church believes that. When that happens we also believe three other things will happen there will be a judgment there will be a a reward and there will be an abolishing of sin and death so when jesus comes there will be a judgment those who stand in faith i'm going to say like really big things right here then you can ask me about it later and when we stand in judgment those who put their faith in jesus christ will be judged on his righteousness and we will yell yet We will yet be rewarded for our works. Maybe this is something we don't like to always talk about too much as a people of faith, but there will be a rewarding for our faith. Crowns and our, uh, 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 what is it called? Jewels and our crowns in heaven, the scriptures will talk about. There will be an account. Jesus talks a great deal about this, accounting for the stewardship, for our actions, for how we live out our faith. Again, our salvation doesn't hang on those works. We'll be judged by the righteousness of Jesus Christ, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, but we will give account for our actions. That begins the call, I think, to faithful creation care and stewardship. So there will be a reward for good things done in the name of Jesus Christ. And then the greatest part of that judgment is Jesus will judge sin and death to be abolished. We could do a whole end time series and unpack all of this for you. The last thing I'll say about it then is that after that abolishing of sin and death, then Jesus will reign forever and ever with the saints here in the new heavens and the new earth. So after that judgment, we aren't again raptured away, we aren't swept away. The image that we read so beautifully and so powerfully from scripture is that literally a new city, a new Jerusalem comes down from heavens and this (laughs) Begins the beginning of this new heaven and new earth, this rebirth, this new creation where we dwell forever in eternal life without sin, without death, with all the saints forever and ever. This again is the belief that the church has held for the vast majority of its existence, and the vast majority of churches throughout all of God's creation still hold on to this hope. By the way, this then is the hope, the hope of the inheritance, the hope of the continuity that has driven so much of the church. This is why we say as a church, I'm just gonna say one more thing and we'll get on to the next, the next question. This is why one of our values that I want us to live into in a church is simply saying everything matters. Because that's what Jesus has been saying all along. When you give a cup of cold water to somebody, I see that and it matters. When you feed somebody who's hungry, that matters. When you clothed somebody who was naked, that mattered. When you visited that person in prison, that mattered. And now if we can pull back to last week, when you planted that tree, when you recycled that garbage, when you sought to just do something to bless creation instead of to strip from creation, that mattered too. That is the beauty, but that is also in a sense that the bearing of the weight of the call of Christ on all of us, that all of these actions matter in the kingdom. Okay, so that's why we believe that this matters and that's why we believe what we do about good stewardship start to look like. Here, I'll start to turn the corner. So the question was posed. So what, so what does good stewardship actually look like? I could list for you, 50 things, a hundred things on what good stewardship could look like. So after I started to write down a list of what good stewardship looked like, I thought maybe I should take a cue from Jesus and tell a story instead. So, <laughs> so here's my answer to what does good stewardship look like? Let me tell you a story and then you'll have to do the hard work of applying it in your life. Instead of telling one of the stories Jesus told, I'm gonna to tell another story from the Bible. It's the story of a man named Solomon. Solomon was the son of David. And Solomon was promised that he would inherit the throne. So he was given the opportunity from God to ask for anything he wanted, and it would be given to him. So Solomon wisely asked for wisdom. Solomon's wisdom is detailed for us in 1 Kings chapter 4. It's a chapter that I love, I, a chapter I encourage you to read now. Whenever the uh, the, the the recorder is describing Solomon's reign and rule, what we see quite beautifully is that people from all over the nations came to sit under, actually, Solomon and to learn from him and to hear his wise words. It said that he spoke over 3,000 Proverbs, said that he wrote uh, over 1,005, very specific number, uh, songs, every one of them a gold standard, every one of them a hit. And then it goes on to say, what was his teaching like? It said, in his teaching, He described the cedars of Lebanon and the trees of the land to the hyssop that grows out of the walls of the very temple that he built. He described the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and the beasts of the field. When they were characterizing his wisdom and his teaching and what stood out from him, it seems to be that he based so much of his teachings from what he saw in God's own creation. But here's the thing about Solomon, with all of that wisdom, with all of that learning, with all of that insight, he didn't always act on it. He had all the knowledge in the world, but it didn't mean much as the years went on in his life. The time came for him to build the temple of God. And it says that he spent seven years building the temple of God, and they did such a great job building the temple of God that he then spent twice as long building his own palace. God got seven years, then he constricted the, the people to work for almost 14 years to build his own palace. Oh, and what just happened there? Yes, as he conscripted the people to build the temple of God, one month of work, two months for your own, come and work for God one month, then work for yourself two months, he just carried that over to his own palace. Hey, since we have this good thing going, why don't you keep working one month for me and two months for yourself. He began to draft the men to fight the wars that he was waging as his lust for power and wealth and pleasure continued to increase. The story of Solomon in many, many ways ends tragically because he didn't live into the wisdom that he received. He let his lust for power drive his own people to fight the wars that he wanted to see waged. He let his own lust for more possessions cause him to take more and more from the people and conscript them to the labor that he desired to be done to build his own kingdom. His own lust for pleasure caused him to marry, well, marry and marry and marry and marry (laughs) over and over again. That lust for more power and pleasure and more connections led him to the building of other temples to worship other gods within the boundaries of the nation that God had chosen to set aside for His glory and for His worship. What does all this mean for us? It means that very often our own lusts for power, our own lusts for possessions, our own lusts for pleasures, very often cause us to simply forgo, to forget, or to push aside what we know to be the wise thing to do. Question number four then. So if stewardship is simply making the wise decision, how then do we balance this in the Christian life? Somebody said, so where does this creation care fit to the greater call of discipleship? Now, to play that out, again, let me kind of say, so what is this, I get it. So we're called as Christians, this life of faith. We should be growing in our faith, forming ourselves spiritually. Uh, We should be worshiping God. Uh, We should be growing in our own discipleship. We should be doing mission work. We should be fellowshipping as the people of God. There's a lot of things that we are called to as the people of God, right? So where does creation care? Where does stewardship fit in with all this? So here's my thought on that, as I thought about, okay, where do we put actually creation care and stewardship in the motif of Christian life? I think we make the mistake of looking at the Christian life very flat and one dimensionally far too often. And we want to box things categorize things there's something about our western thought we want to have our work life our family life our play life our our, our, our church life we, we want to kind of box things i think very one dimensionally i invite you just to think about creation care much more integrated to all of your life here's a situation i've never been put in Ah, oh, i really want to recycle this bottle that i just used but there's somebody there that wants me to share the gospel with them Oh no, what should I do? No, we, we are never put in situations like that. We don't have to think about creation care as this either or kind of situation. It is this, and also, <laughs> we are doing discipleship and being stewards. We are doing evangelism and being stewards. And here's my thought on that. And here's where I'll push it a little bit further. Um, I'm just gonna be honest, I'm just gonna be honest. I've received more criticism for trying to be a good steward from circles of faith than people outside of faith. I've received condescending, kind of a mocking tone when I talk about creation care. If you bring up the topic of climate change, of pollution, of resource depletion, of uh, deforestation, Uh, of a desertification of previously lush and arid areas. I, I almost get this condescending mocking tone of Christians. Oh, you're one of those people who care for all of this kind of stuff. But from people outside of the faith, anytime I bring up creation care or anytime I'm in a situation of doing creation care, it seems to open doors for sharing the love of Jesus Christ. In my own life, simply put, don't want to drag this out any longer than necessary. I'm a part of our trail team, our volunteers that work on the trails in the valley where I live. Yes, I do so for a very selfish reason. It gets me a bike pass to get more trails. That said, I've had some of the most wonderful conversations with my neighbors while we work on cleaning up our trails in our neighborhood. Hi, who are you? I'm George. What do you do when you're not working on the trails? Oh, I'm a pastor of a church in Highlands Ranch. You're a pastor of a church? Yes, I am. Tell me about your church. Yeah, it just, whenever I engage in areas of creation care and stewardship and try to model that with my neighbors, I'm telling you, it seems to be opening up doors for wonderful conversations. I would encourage you to try the same and see if environmental care might not be one of the most powerful new forms of evangelism, particularly to up and coming generations. Okay, one last question then. So we talked about the rapture and what it means, our beliefs on the end times. Good stewardship is often just choosing the wise thing. Um, this is how it fits in, you know, I think it's integrated with all of our life as Christians. So then somebody said, if there's one thing I could do coming out of this, what's the one thing that I should be doing coming out of this series, George? Actually, nobody asked me that question, I just wanted to answer it. So here's the one thing, I just. I, I also have to be honest too, nobody asked me that one, I just wanted to say this. <laughs> so here's what I wanna say, here is, I was like, because I was seriously, I was like, I've said so much now the past five weeks, and it's a daunting, daunting topic. So what's one thing, what's one thing we could take from this that I think would then trickle into other areas of life? Sabbath. I went right back to my summer, and I was like, why did I even want to do this series? Why did I get so jazzed about creation care? Why did I get so jazzed up about stewardship? Why was I so pumped about this whole series. And it was simply actually when I reflected on it because I just spent the last three months enjoying creation in some profound ways. Our God after creating for six days took a day of rest. Our God after creating us said work for six days, work hard and take a day of rest. And our God said the creation itself deserves a day of rest. And our creation itself deserves a whole year of rest after every seven years. And our creation itself deserves a whole rest after 50 years and even more year of Jubilee and rest for the creation. So if there's anything I think that could change us and trickle into all areas of our life, I think it's Sabbath. I think it's stopping. I think it's resting. I mean, we give a rest from our exertion of things that deplete creation if we just stop for a day. So just stop. Stop and rest. Stop and worship. Because I can almost guarantee this. I mean, because this happens so often. Well, I'm taking a day off. What am I gonna do with my day off? I guess I'll take a walk in the woods. I mean, how many of us have done that when we've taken a day off? What is the first thing that comes to mind? Well, maybe I'll just take a walk. There's something about going back to creation that brings that rest, that brings that filling, that just feeds into us. So if there's anything that I think can trickle into all of our lives that can make a difference of creation care, it's what can cascade from simply taking seriously the invitation to rest. It honors God, it gives our body rest, and somehow I think it just plays into giving creation more and more of the rest that it deserves. Kellen, I need you to come up it's on you too, if you're gonna keep singing with us. And I wanna end with two things. This is um, this is the most personal I've ever been with the church. If you're here today visiting, you're about to get the most personal. I wrestled if I was going to do this or not because it could seem very much about me. But I don't want it to be about me, but I will let you know it's very much about my story. We'll be emotional to, to share this. Um, Chris, can we get that picture up on screen? That's my grandfather. There's a book written about my grandfather and it's called The Green Republican. That might be the greatest title ever written in the history of books. (laughs) (laughs) The Green Republican? What's that all about? John Saylor and the Preservation of America's Wilderness. I'm gonna read to you a couple excerpts from this book. Starting at the end and working to the beginning, and you'll understand perfectly well in just a moment why I'm doing this. Here is a list of things that my grandfather accomplished. By the way, I also have to do this. Oh, I hate doing this. Oh, I hate, oh my goodness. If you tell anybody I had to do this, you're. A <laughs> oh, there we go. Half a century, and proud of it need these glasses now. Here's a list of some of my grandfather's accomplishments. A compilation of Sailor's legislative achievements is impressive. He was the principal house architect of the Wilderness Bill, the Land and Water Conservation Fund, the O R R R C. that's the Outdoor Recreation Resource Review Committee, the Wild and Scenic Rivers Bill, and the Anti-Sky Hunting Measure. He co-sponsored legislation establishing Redwood National Park, the CNO Canal National Historic Park, the National Trail System. He also championed the establishment of Canyonlands, North Cascades, and Voyers National Parks, plus national lakeshores, seashores, recreation areas, and historic sites. In Pennsylvania, he secured the Johnstown Flood Historic Site. The Allegheny Portage Railroad Historic Site, the Delaware Water Gap National Recreation Area, the Coal Research Act, and a co-sponsor of the Black Lung Bill, one of the main sponsors of the Wilderness and Wild Scenic Rivers Act. He worked doggedly to add units to these systems. It kind of goes on to talk about all the national parks that we can thank my grandfather for Sailor was a friend of the environment as well as the land he endorsed the National Environmental Policy Act he supported the air and water quality acts including full funding I'm gonna stop it makes you feel small whenever you read all that my grandfather did but it was amazing to me in this past summer the national parks that I visited that I could make an immediate line of connection to just literally thank God and say a little bit of thanks for my grandfather that I had these parks to visit. It didn't only extend to those national parks and other places of the world. Residents of Pitkin County here in Colorado. Residents of Pitkin County hailed Sailor as their best friend in Washington, demonstrating their gratitude with their votes, even though Saylor's name never appeared on a Colorado ballot. During the September primary for the fourth congressional district, the Democratic incumbent, Wayne Aspinall, ran unopposed. But when the ballots were counted in Pitkin County, Saylor as a write-in candidate received 80 votes, Aspinwall 50. My grandfather won Congress here in Colorado and didn't say yes. I should have grown up here. What was he thinking? Why did he? Anyways, he loved Johnstown too and so do I. He won an election here in Colorado, never even ran. But here's what you'll be interested in. Here's how the story of my grandfather begins. Several factors shaped Sailor's evolution as an environmental activist. His parents instilled in him a love for nature, John inheriting from his father a passion for hunting and angling. They also provided him with a strong religious base that emphasized earth stewardship. America's natural wonders, he once said, stood as special monuments to the divine being. To permit the despoilment of our natural resources would be to desecrate our divine inheritance. It is thus incumbent upon us to make provisions to safeguard for succeeding generations the natural endowments that are our our trust, protecting nature and natural splendors, he believed, would bring present and future generations closer to the Creator. A World War II veteran, Saylor was intensely nationalistic and patriotic, and he believed that America's sublime landscapes, especially its national parks, glorified the people It was because he grew up in an environment like this. It's because he grew up in a church that emphasized creation care and stewardship that we have so much of the natural resources still to this day. If I offended anybody by being that personal, I apologize. But that's a part of my story. And I wanted to become a part of our stories. I doubt I'll get to write a National Scenic Rivers and Wildlife Act in my lifetime, unless things profoundly change for me after 50. But I can keep glorifying God through the creation. I can keep embracing my call to be a stewardship, and I can keep doing the simple things each and every day to try and better show creation care. And so here's where I wanna end this. There's an old philosophy called, uh, or a philosopher, uh, uh, Blase Pascal, and, and he made a thing called, called Pascal's Wager. Some of you probably heard of Pascal's Wager. And it was real simple. He said, if there is a God, it makes a lot of sense to honor God, and live for God, because things will work out very well for you in the end. And if there isn't a God, well, what did you lose by honoring God all of your life? He's sort of like nothing, all to win, nothing to lose live like there's a god because if there is a god you have everything to gain and if not ah well whatever make sense people critique it and criticize it well they should and he criticized it himself he's like i know it says nothing for genuine belief and faith i get it but there's a certain logic to it live like everything the bible says is true and there's the potential for great reward so i'm going to hereby make the stewardship creation care wager. People are arguing so much about creation care. I don't believe in climate change. I don't believe forests are being devastated. I don't believe pollution matters. I don't believe any... Yeah, yeah. We're just fighting about these things. Well, here's, here's the wager I think we make. What if we live like all of our worries are actually true? What if we live like the sky is falling? What if we live like it really matters for us to take seriously this call to creation care we have everything to gain and nothing to lose we have everything to gain but what do we lose nothing nothing at all live like a steward care for creation love god love your neighbor. Make the right choice, do the wise thing, do the hard thing sometimes. What do we have to lose? I don't think we have anything to lose, but I think we have everything to gain. Everything to gain. Just by honoring God, it is called to us to stewardship, stewardship, excuse me. I better pray and we better worship God a little bit then. Heavenly